Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I want to address in our healthcare ethics, one of our last and final um, lectures for this very strange semester that we're experiencing this year of COVID-19. Um, I want to talk about vaccines. And I want to talk about some of the ethical dimensions of vaccination, um, some of the things that have been happening in recent times that have actually caused many parents to be concerned about vaccinations and maybe to even refuse to vaccinate their children. I think, I think we do have to keep it in perspective. It, it has been found that most parents are in fact supportive of vaccines. Um, but some do oppose um, vaccines for a variety of, of reasons, and I'll probably um, readdress these as I go through my talk. But I just want to mention some very common reasons why parents may oppose um, vaccination of their children. Certainly, there have been um, correlations of, of health risks um, with certain disease states and vaccines. Um, I think some parents have a false sense of security um, that if you know, everyone else gets vaccinated. I don't have to get vaccinated. Um, there's a minimal threat that they feel to their own personal family. Maybe they've never witnessed someone who's who's experienced the ravages of, of not being vaccinated and having a, a horrible disease state occur. Um, and then I think lastly, which is probably the, the least thing that we see today in terms of vaccines is some parents do have a moral concern about where those vaccines originate from. And so there is a concern sometimes that those vaccines should not be used because of um, the origins of that vaccine. I think we have to remember though that vaccination is critically important. And it's critically important um, because we have many people in our community um, who are at risk, right? We have the elderly who are at risk, we have the immune suppressed who are at risk, and we have the very young we're at risk. And so we have seen um, over the last several years, you know, several outbreaks of diseases that we haven't seen, you know, in decades because of vaccination um, come, come out again because of some geographical locations choosing not to vaccinate. 2014, we saw an outbreak of measles in California when we haven't seen this in years. Um, and this is one of those places in which vaccination levels are down. Um, now, I think at a national level, level um, vaccination hovers really around 90%, which is critical. That's a critical number to attain herd immunity. And I'll, I'll define that in a bit. Um, but if we look at certain areas, particularly those who have um, higher instances of poverty, those who, are, who live below the poverty line, historically, these, these communities have had lower levels of vaccination and also fears about vaccinations, which have decreased the vaccination rates. 21% of states only are keeping their vaccination rates above 90%. This is a problem. You know, if only 21% of our states are keeping vaccination rates above 90%, then herd immunity is not um, going to be sustaining um, a non-outbreak um, environment. So what is herd immunity? Herd immunity says if the majority of people in the population are vaccinated, 
then that particular infection is unlikely to spread. So if one person is exposed and they encounter 10 people and all of them are vaccinated, um, the likelihood of anyone getting sick and then passing it on to someone else is very low. But if that one person who is exposed encounters 10 people and only three of them are vaccinated, then the other seven are likely to catch that disease and then pass it on or expose someone else to that disease and so on. And that's how outbreaks occur. And so those who can't be vaccinated are assisted by herd immunity. Um, there are some folks that can never vaccinate. Um, some people who have inborn errors in their immune system, those people that are undergoing chemotherapy, those who are suffering from HIV, babies under the age of one can't receive live vaccines. And so there are certain vac vaccinations that are given in live formulations. And so herd immunity protects these folks. And so it's so important for us to be able to maintain that 90% level. Now, why are some reasons that parents distrust vaccines, despite the health benefits that we often talk about? First and foremost, there is a general mistrust of vaccines because of a Great Britain publication that was widely publicized about a link of vaccines to autism. And I have to tell you um, that these links to autism have been repeatedly and validly refuted that this connection to autism does not exist. These have been refuted, and yet this person actually is now in America spreading this same um, kind of agenda. Um, and so this has really provided for a general mistrust of vaccines. I think secondarily, um, another reason why parents um, distrust vaccines is, is that parents that, um, that actually are alive and making decisions about vaccinations today are people who have never witnessed the devastating effects of a lack of vaccine. They've never seen a child in an iron lung. They've never seen a child or an infant die from an outbreak of rubella or measles. Um, so it's often difficult for these parents to accept mere possibility of infection when they've never witnessed the devastating um, effects. There are geographic areas in which widespread distrust exists. One of those geographic areas are Southern California. A lot of reasons why you may, you know, think that this is true. Um, Oregon is another um, hotspot in which general areas of widespread distrust exist. And then finally, um, it's interesting, and the other ge geographical area is up and down the East Coast. So up and down the East Coast, Southern California and Oregon. Um, and then the other um, area in which parents seem to have a widespread distrust are those that are highly educated, which is interesting, right? Because they seem to opt out more than the average American. So a high proportion of highly educated parents. Um, and so that's, that's often an issue um, that seems to contribute to a distrust of the vaccination um, issue. There's also a moral element that contributes to hesitation to vaccinate. 
You know, and I think that this is, is a real concern for us today. And I think all of us have seen this, right? There's a lack of morality in general, you know, in the general population today. And so a lack of moral formation, a lack of moral concern for others that many parents, many families feel like only, I only need to be concerned with my own nuclear family and there's no concern for the common good, which is an element, right, of Christian teaching that has in the past always been considered the concern for the common good, a belief that I don't need vaccination, others will vaccinate so I will be fine. And, and so this, there's a deep selfishness that is inconsistent with one wanting to live a moral life. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this when we come upon, you know, our patients, maybe family, friends that come up with these, you know, concerns about vaccination? I think, I think what we need to do is, is find out why these persons are opposed to vaccination. I think oftentimes people are victims of misinformation. And so we must inform those parents. Why are you worried? You know, if you are worried, here are the studies. I vaccinated my own children. I was vaccinated. And so after, you know, I think those folks that are victims of misinformation are more apt to vaccinate after they've been informed. I think for those who just don't feel threatened that have this false sense of security of even if these diseases are real, I think we need to show them that these diseases are real and that there have been outbreaks and to discuss how we must protect others. Um, I think that this is probably going to be one of those arguments in which we're not as successful as with others, um, but we can be successful, more successful, if there is a relationship of trust um, with our patients, with our, our families. Um, and it has been seen that new, par new parents um, are often those victims of fear. And so once they've been educated, we can be more successful. Um, so I mentioned the common good. What is the common good? And, and I think I've, I've talked about it a little bit um, in previous lectures, but the common good is something that's entrenched really in the gospel and in Catholic social teaching. And so we have to really reflect upon how is this idea of the common good, how does this apply to vaccination? So what is the common good? The common good refers to the sum total of social conditions which allow a person to flourish as a child of God, to, to make accessible to this person what is needed to lead a truly human life so that there's food, clothing, health, uh, work, education, culture. Um, and so this idea that the common good is something that all of us really have a right to. It also brings about duties, but it, it also is a right. Um, and so when we respect our own health, we, it simultaneously demands that we respect the health of others. And this is, this is what the common good points to, that all of us deserve this capacity for good health, um, you know, food, clothing, those basic human necessities. Um, and the church, you know, draws a line between rights and duties of persons. That man has rights because he's created in the image and likeness of God. But he also has duties to be like God in his nature. And so how do we be like God? Well, we're generous. We're merciful, right? We're, we want to suffer alongside. We want to make sure that we are not putting another person's health in danger. And vaccination is one of those ways in which we can protect ourselves, as well as our fellow man. 
One of the other concerns about vaccines has been the way they've been in fact for, developed. Um, and there have been cell lines which continue to be um, utilized, which were which have come from aborted human fetuses. And the, the rubella vaccine is, is one of those vaccines. And it's the only available measles vaccine in the United States. Um, and it's, it's kind of ironic that this vaccine, which was taken from aborted human fetuses, was actually designed initially to prevent harm to unborn children, because that's who is so devastated by rubella if mom gets infected and they're exposed. Um, what the church has said is that um, is that these vaccines that have come from aborted cell lines are not immoral. The development of these vaccines are long and complicated, right? So the initial stages of these vaccine development in which these cell lines were utilized directly from aborted fetuses, formal cooperation with evil, wrong, bad, um, and so, but what's, what's important for us to know is that these cell lines um, that were originally used um, have been made copies of. The, these, these cell lines have been copied, right, um, in order to produce copies of the virus in order to produce antibodies in which these vaccines, which are foundational for these vaccines. Um, so the cell lines used were from tissues of aborted fetuses initially. So originally these were immorally derived, but we're not continuing to use aborted fetuses, you know, to, we're using the cell lines from that initial aborted fetuses, which was formal cooperation with evil. But these cell lines that were currently being used to make rubella vaccines, um, are far and away removed from that initial cooperation in evil. So there was formal cooperation um, in um, when we assist in the performance of an evil act and we intend that evil, right? That's what formal cooperation is, when we intend that evil. And, and we know that, that we can never participate in formal cooperation with an evil action. But, um, parents who are using the current vaccines, they're, they're not intending, you know, to cooperate in the evil of that initial, you know, aborted fetus. They're, they in, they're intending to keep their children and others from harm. And so we are, in fact, cooperating materially with evil. Um, and remember, we broke down material cooperation um, as not intending the evil action, but providing assistance in order for that immoral act to actually be carried out. Immediate cooperation, then again, doesn't share the intention. Um, immediate material cooperation doesn't share the intention, but it participates in the circumstances which are essential to the act. This is much of the time not okay. But material immediate cooperation participates in, in the circumstances that are not essential to the act. And that's really what's happening with using vaccination or vaccination using these cell lines. These are immediate material cooperation and it's remote, right? Because we're far away from that initial um, evil action. This, this issue has been addressed by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, for the Pontifical Council for Life, and it has been determined that it is moral for parents to use these vaccines to protect their children and others. But we do have a duty 
to make our disagreement and our concern with these vaccinations known. Um, but to not use these vaccinations is to place in danger the common good. Now there are ethically derived vaccinations, um, vaccines in Europe, and unfortunately it's unlikely for them to um, make it to the United States because of the economics of the situation. Um, the MMR, which is this vaccine um, that is used um, for rubella in the United States has widespread acceptance and the regulatory processes to bring the vaccine that is morally acceptable to America would be extremely expensive. And I think it would require a shift in our culture um, to be a shift that we're really not on the trajectory for. And so, um, so that is probably um, not going to happen in our lifetime. Okay, quickly, I want to just talk about some vaccinations for STDs. There have been vaccinations that have made, been made available um, for HPV, other sexually transmitted diseases. How do we uh, qualify these, um, these vaccinations in terms of their, their ethical quality? Let's look at the HPV vaccine. The HPV vaccine um, is the um, human papilloma um, virus vaccine. And this is a, this actually is a virus that um, is the number one cause for cervical cancer in cancer, uh, cervical cancer in women in the United States. Um, and it has been available um, for years now, probably, gosh, 10 years, um, for women to um, be vaccinated against. Um, is this a moral thing for us to do? I think that, um, I think we can look at this in a couple of different ways. You know, I think that some of the concerns about allowing vaccination for um, a disease which is obtained through sexual activity particularly promiscuous sexual activity because it's usually more than one person um, unless you've had sex with someone who has been sexually active before. So again, monogamy prevents sexually transmission of these diseases, but both have to be monogamous. Um, and prevention against HPV um, with the use of a vaccine, again, isn't on its face value morally problematic unless we are actually communicating through the use of this vaccine that this is a fail safe measure when you decide to go out and have, you know, premarital sexual activity um, to protect you from HPV. Because actually this vaccine does not protect against all strains of HPV. Um, and so we have to be careful to, to communicate and understand what actually this vaccine um, does. And so, although it does um, protect against, I believe, four strains of the HPV um, virus, it does not protect against all. It doesn't have to be a communication to your child that this is a fail-safe mechanism and that this allows then you, therefore, to be able to participate in premarital um, activity. Um, and it can actually protect someone um, against an assault a rape, um, but parents should not be compelled by the state to administer the HPV vaccine. 
but it does not contradict the Catholic faith to take them. Again, with a mindset and a teaching you know, capacity and intervention on the part of parents to do so um, responsib uh, responsibly, um, very important. I think it's, it is important for us to recognize um, that in some sectors, the HPV vaccine proposes a technological solution to a moral problem. Um, and I think for the most part, we have to remember that in order to solve moral problems, we really have to use moral means. And so technology can aid us in this, but it can often appear as an easy solution and can undermine the efforts of parents and teachers. I think there was a really good um, paper written on this by um, Father Tad Paholchik, who I've exposed you guys to on YouTube. Um, and he just talked about, you know, I think where we might consider HPV as, as a really um, well-founded um, use would be, you know, in a, in a young woman who is getting married and she has been chased her whole life. And, and unfortunately, the, the guy she's marrying is currently now chased, but had not been previously. And so is there a concern that she could in fact be exposed to a disease through her marriage? Um, would that not be um, a good um, option for someone to use um, the HPV vaccine. And so, so I think that there are, there are ways in which we can certainly consider the use of the vaccine um, that might uh, make sense. Um, but again, it has to be well thought out and always alongside um, a, moral, um, a moral consciousness. Okay. I want to talk a little bit, really a very little bit, about human experimentation um, and research on a human subject. And when is that acceptable? How do we, how do we see that um, as a Christian um, community? I, you know, I think, I think first and foremost, um, whenever there's any type of research that's going to happen, you are going to have an ethics committee overseeing any research that goes on in the hospital. And it must go through um, that committee in order for that research project to be allowed. And so I wanna just kind of review some of the tasks of that review community and what, what every review committee would include in reviewing any kind of research that may be done on a human person. I think the first, of course, is identifying the benefits and the risks. Um, you know, what, what are the benefits of this? Um, you know, it can't just be, you know, risking a person without any known benefits um, of the research. And so we need to identify benefits. And then what kind of harm, the probability of harm, the duration of harm? Is it a risk of death or is it a risk of vomiting, you know? Um, so we need to look at both those things, both the benefits and the risks. We also want to determine that the research design minimizes the risk. Um, we want to determine that the benefits outweigh the risks. We want to assure that potential subjects will understand the research project, including its purpose, the risks, and the benefits. So informed consent always is essential. Um, and if the population is vulnerable, then there must be other safeguards put in place to protect that um, vulnerable population. All institutions have what we call an institutional review board, an IRB. And this um, 
this review board is in charge of reviewing research on human subjects um, and the above that I just mentioned are really their tasks. Benefits and risks, the kind of harm, are we doing everything we can to reduce harm? Do the benefits outweigh the risks? Does the design minimize the risk? And is informed consent available? And if the, the population is vulnerable, are we minimizing um, that vulnerability? All right, thanks you all. That's our overview of vaccinations as well as research.